Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver and to another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit, where I, Jeff, the pundit, talk with my comrade, integral psychotherapist, Dr. Keith Witt, the shrink, about healthy integral living. Our topic today is how to deal with the emotional pain we encounter in relationships with other people and where all of that is going evolutionarily. Thanks for joining us. I have been, as you know, noodling about what is the nature of the sacred world to come. You know, if we are indeed evolving creatures, evolving cultures in an evolving cosmos, and you know, the the the, the gravity is is moving towards goodness, truth, and beauty, then where are we going? I think that as we develop, we'll be a whole lot less dainty with each other. Yes. And that while propriety and politeness were progress over the uncouthness that came before them in terms of our, even our individual history, you know, at some point we have to become a Boy Scout and Girl Scout or we have to get civilized. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we want to let that earlier juice back online in a liberated way. And I never know exactly what that means. You know, I, I never know exactly what that looks like, except that I it just it is sort of a placeholder in my mind. I think that it's going to be something like we will treat strangers with the candor and playfulness that we now reserve for our close friends, or maybe yes. something like that. So, no, anyways, I, like that. That, yeah. I think that's accurate. I, I believe that actually, I think that's happening. I do think it. I think it's happening too. So I wrote you yesterday, and, here, and here's what I, I wrote because it's just such a coincidence and was just so powerful for me, actually. And so I was noodling about this, and I made a note to myself for a future podcast. And I wrote, what will it be to fight with other people in a way that doesn't hurt? Mm -hmm. Or at least is it wounding or ruinous? Mm -hmm. And then I wrote... Did we really think that we were just going to continue to get nicer <laughs> so that in the paradise to come, we are lazing by the riverbank with the lions and the lambs for all of eternity? You know, I guess it beats burning in the fiery furnace, but, yeah, but you know, it's still a little boring. It's still a little boring. So then I wrote, no, God is too generous and this life is something else. And wow. And so I got into that. So anyway, so then I was done with that. And I went to uh, my email where there was a message from you about our topic today. And you were noodling about it. And here's what you wrote. So this is what I'm reading after I write this thing about what is it to fight? And how can we do it where it doesn't hurt? And you write, I think emotional pain is somewhat misunderstood, particularly in the US with a focus on zero, zero tolerance for emotional pain. And so, boy, that's interesting. So maybe it's actually about the receiver of the pain in a way. And, and so you can continue, you write, I think this zero tolerance is a, a, a contributor to the epidemic of anxiety, depression, and medication in America, and that the more integral understanding addresses both the inevitability of emotional pain and how to integrate it into a joyful life. So... I'm thinking, so that really rang a bell for me, it, that maybe it's not that it doesn't hurt, but that we just have more capacity to hold it 
or something like that. And I thought we might start there (laughs) and have you explain what you're talking about. Um, So one thing that people misunderstand is, yes, somebody, how many emotions do you think you felt last, last yesterday? Somebody uh, uh, told me that they were at a workshop. Somebody asked and people will say 10 or 15. Well, actually we feel thousands of different discrete emotions in a day that those, those basic emotions, anger, fear, um, sadness, loss, um, desire, and so on, are basically like the primary colors of which thousands of, of emotions, and all the emotions are motivating us to do something, to act. And then they guide us throughout our life, and they come up with impulses, and because we're human beings, they come up with stories that support the impulses and the emotions. And that's the nature of consciousness. And a lot of those emotions are uncomfortable. Sadness, fear, anger, anxiety, nausea, um, uh, terror, rage, all that kind of stuff. They're uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I love what you wrote. If I may just read another sure. sentence or two. You, you say that we have to, as you say, accept the reality that to one extent or another, everyone has chronically amped up distress and a persistent negativity that generates confusing, distorted stories and emotional pain. Yeah. It's so that's, human- that's really just true of all of us, isn't it? True of all humans. You, we you- have chronically amped up distress and persistent negativity that generates confused, distorted stories and emotional pain. Fuck yeah. 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 And so we need, so the challenge is how do we grow through that? And also uh, the challenge is how do we help our children grow through that? Right. Because most of our programming happens when our brains are immature and program broad strokes, uh, black and white distinctions, Um, defensive habits. You know, defensive habits are negative emotions and thoughts and stories that we our nervous system generates to control other negative emotions and and thoughts and stories. So, like, you know, when I'm if I start if I start fearing that that group of guys over there is going to think I'm a dick, you know, like he's a dick, and I have an anxiety about that, or I, or I feel anticipatory shame about that, then I will adjust to, oh, those guys are assholes, and I'll get mad at them, okay? So now I'm developing a negative feeling state with a story to defend against a fantasy that I'm having that has generated a negative emotion, shame, that I'm defending against, and all that stuff is happening non-consciously until I become aware of it. Now, let me also say that you're dealing with something that has been programmed into the psyche because it was useful for a lot of human history when they actually were plotting against you. (laughs) Yeah, and and not just human history. Through the history of life, there's always a background hub of the, the, you know, this universe is not safe. So you look both ways before you, you cross the street because there's a little bit of you scared of getting hit by a truck. That background hum of anxiety or, you know, you're, you're ready to protect yourself in a different, difficult situation. There's a background hum of defensive anger, for instance. So this is all our genetic heritage. Now, consciousness is wonderful because it creates this, our conversation and, and all the miracles. But consciousness is also scary because it creates cognitive structures that can get us lost in emotional pain and give us a tendency to. That negativity bias is is what we all have to that's self-protective because we're biased to look at the threat more than at the opportunity. We know we like opportunities, but threats cancel out opportunities. Now in America, 
the last hundred years, there's been a conspiracy in a way, um, not by design, I don't think. There's a there's of a lot of forces that have generated the zero tolerance for emotional pain thing. One of it is psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, which has promised relief from the suffering of being a human and being in a relationship. Um, another one is marketing. You know, every time that I do a class or a workshop or something, some, and I ask for marketing advice, the people ask me to overpromise. You know, don't offer that you can get some new perspectives, maybe a new experience. And, you know, if you're really ready to tip over into something, maybe you'll tip over, but that doesn't happen too often. Don't say that. Say this is going to change your life. And I go, well, wait a minute. You know, I'm, I, I, it's not, it's, I can't guarantee that. No, you, um, no, no. Oh, so overpromise. And then we have the pharmaceutical companies that go, wow. You know, if I can just tell people, boy, are you feeling a little bum today? Well, take this drug and you'll feel great. Now, what that says is that normal is feeling great all the time. And if you feel a little bummed, something's wrong. Well, let me stop you there. I think that. Oh, Jeff. I do. I mean, I don't when I'm in my more conscious, when I have a little more, more self-reflective. But that's sort of my day-to-day orientation. I'm always, you know, looking to feel better and think that I should. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think even when you talk about, I know you, you, you've thought a lot about this in terms of parenting, because, you know, this is where we could really you know, double and triple the impact of it. But it's also in, in, in a way our self-parenting. It's the way we, you know, work with ourselves. And so I'm not a parent of human children, but I do have little Stella Sue and Gracie Mae the dogs. And I must tell you that my parenting strategy for those dogs is that they should never have an unpleasant moment. <laughs> there you go. I mean, they do. You're an American and I, but exactly. I mean, this this hallucination that we all have mm-hmm. that if we're not feeling good, there's something wrong is so deep that I'm just beginning to notice it in a way. Right. And and even new there's a functional medicine uh, dietitian named Trudy Scott who has these three summits that she did on anxiety. And I love them. People from all around the world, you know how summits are. They're just wonderful. But her story is, I used to be super anxious. And then I changed. I had pyroluria. So pyroluria is a genetic thing that makes you anxious. And you, you can take care of it with um, vitamin B6, zinc, and even in primrose oil. So I did this stuff. And she said, now I have zero anxiety. That's her pitch. And I go, wait a minute, Trudy Scott. Like, I really like you, but you don't have zero anxiety. And if you do, you're dissociating. And dissociating isn't a really good idea. (laughs) I want whatever that is she has, by the way. (laughs) Well, see, here's here's the way it works. (laughs) If you have zero, so there's two different forms of attention you can give emotion. One form of attention, which is the healthy kind, which is if it's painful, all right, emotion wants action. What action do you want from me? Okay, so I'll do whatever I can of that action, and now I move on into the present moment. That action, if I'm doing, if it's appropriate action, will reduce whatever the distress is and make it more make me more able to enter the present moment. So if you wake up and you feel a little bad, okay, a little bad is saying, well, you need a little bit of you need some action. What is that action? Well, that action might be reminding yourself, you know, I feel a little bad because it's cloudy today and because you know my knee hurts a little bit. And what I need to do is to get on with my day and remember how lucky I am that I have so many people who love me and that I, you know, get to be me. You go, yeah, I feel a little bit better. You take an action, you get back into the present moment. Okay, that reduced appropriate action and then thought, an appropriate story, reduce the anxiety. Because you didn't just change, take the action, you changed your story, which is, you know, I'm bummed, life sucks, to 
that. Okay, so what anxious attention is completely different. If you give anxious attention, you go, God, I feel bad. Something must be wrong. Huh. You start creating a story around something must be wrong. Hmm. Maybe I have cancer. Hmm. Maybe that's it. You know, brain cancer, because then that would make me feel bad. Hmm. Well, maybe I should go get checked out for brain cancer. Oh, God, I have brain cancer. That would be such a bummer. All my friends would be so bad. You know, God, then I wouldn't be able to talk. God, I love to talk so much. Okay, so now I'm giving it anxious attention. I'm amplifying the anxiety. And now I'm amplifying that, that story. And that can become a habit. You can become a habit of putting anxious attention on something and jacking up the story. And then the habit is, let's look for what's wrong. And people who look for what's wrong repetitively, have a pessimistic explanatory style, are unhappier people. Okay? And so we can learn to look for what's right, but we need to encounter all the habits that we have about looking for what's wrong and know the difference between appropriate attention and action and healthy and unhealthy appropriate attention and action on negative emotions, recognizing that what we do with, with painful emotions is we give them appropriate attention, we reduce them, and then get, get involved in the present moment. Now, you know, there's a reason why parent, you know, parents who are emotionally coaching parents, their kids tend to do well with one exception. Emotionally coaching parents are, and, we, and I'm talking about you can parent yourself this way as well as other people. You pay attention to emotion, you notice it, you name it, you act on it, and then and set boundaries or you act on it and then you move on. Parents who don't set boundaries tend to have kids that are more hostile later on rather than less hostile. Why is that? Because if, if you're working with a kid at a certain point, you, you know, we've, we've talked about, you know, you being scared of spiders and that's why you don't want to go on the hike. But, you know, now we have to let you know there aren't any spiders you can jump out. You don't have to worry about it. We're going to go on a hike and I'll watch out. And now it's time to go on the hike. So we've reached a point where the anxiety has been reduced. The child has reduced their own anxiety a little bit. They've received a little influence from us to reduce their anxiety. And now let's set the boundary time to move on. Okay. In other words, that latent anxiety that you have is just what you're going to have to deal with. We're going on a hike and let's get involved in the hike. And five minutes later, the kid says, God, it's so pretty out here. You go, yeah, it's really pretty out here. And so on. Yeah. So that's how we parent. So you're developing an appropriate fear of spiders at that point that puts them in their appropriate place in the jungle. Yeah, and, the, and there is an appropriate fear of spiders. You, like, you live in Santa Barbara, which doesn't have you know much threat other than poison ivy and rattlesnakes if you step on them. I and mean, besides that, you know it's a pretty safe place. But you don't stick your hand into a dark place without looking into it because black widows live in dark places, and you might get bit, and that's a bad thing. Okay, so that's an appropriate fear of spiders. But so what you've done is you've reduced the anxiety and then moved on into the present moment. You haven't eliminated it. Um, uh, if you get mad at your partner, you know, say, say Chuck's supposed to show up at 1 and he shows up at 1.45. And you go, God, Chuck, you're supposed to show up at 1. And he goes, yeah, I know. So no, Chuck would never do this. But he says, yeah, I know, but, you know, I knew you'd get, it, you'd get over it, you know, and I was just having too much fun talking to my friend, okay? And you go, God, that's not a right, right answer. I, yeah, I want an apology. So, so now you're getting mad. Okay, so then you talk about it and so on. And you're still a little irritated that he was that he was 45 minutes late, but then he goes, you yeah, know, I'm sorry, and you know, I won't do it again, and so on. So it reduces it, you go back into the present moment. And you know, you create some kind of positive connection. Now that's what we do with all the painful emotions. We 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 give them attention, reduce them, move into the present moment. This is what people that with OCD don't do. 
they just keep keep keeping anxious attention and self amplifying. And now, would keep story. Would you say that this is you know I think of this the the the, the evolutionary engine of turning uh, subject into object, mm-hmm. uh, and so that you're seeing. So I, I wake up and I'm not feeling so good, mm-hmm. and um, and I can just expand to see and hold that not feeling good Jeff um, in a way that I'm not as attached to or gripped by. Yes. Yes. Good. And yeah. also now, so that's happening and you go, okay, I'm, I'm paying attention and not feeling good. You know, I want to understand it a little bit. Maybe it's just the weather. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's okay. And what kind of action is required from that? Like one thing that I always remember, an action that, that I have when I wake up and feel distressed is I remember Bronnie Ware's book on the, the, what, the, the five regrets that, that dying people had when she worked with dying people. And one of the, one of the main regrets was I, I regret that I didn't realize that happiness is a choice. Every time I think about that, I get happier. Yeah. Oh, man, me too. Right now. Right now. So that's an action and a story. Okay, so I'm, I feel a little bit distressed for some whatever reason. I take the action. Happiness is a choice. The story is, yeah, you got a pretty great life, Keith, and you like yourself. Okay, I get happier. And then I move into the present moment. Okay. Um, now, what I'm doing now is I'm practicing giving appropriate attention to distress rather than anxious attention, which amplifies it. Right. And now this is the problem with helicopter parents giving, I don't want my kid to suffer. By doing that, they're actually teaching their kids to have zero tolerance for pain. And then what they do is they feel bad when they're, something's wrong when they're in pain and they want to eliminate all of it. And then they start amplifying their pain. Well, this is sort of one of the downsides of the green postmodern worldview coming online. You well, know, that, that we have so much sensitivity. There's a, a lot of new sensitivity to our own pain, to other people's pain, to all these interior states and so forth that we, you know, we, we sort of take that momentum of our human history of just protecting ourselves from real spiders and real dangers. And, you know, yeah. we get this, this, this idea that, that the thing that we need is to be safe from things that irritate us. So we're trying to protect ourselves from this whole new area of sensitivity that is, we can't. Yeah, and if somebody does something that distresses me, they've screwed up. Yes. You no, know, that this is why everybody like by Peterson is just so ha- is so popular. Yeah. You know, his thing is look, you know, walk through the world, pay attention to people, and there's a few people that are being offensive and a few people who are being themselves and mean well and notice the difference, but you know, be aware of the context. Yeah. And and then adjust to that rather than than constantly expect the context to adjust to you, which is what children who are taught that they're not supposed to have any emotional pain and they're supposed to be in an environment where people protect them from it, they begin to expect that and that yeah. blocks their development. Well, and, and, and I can see that in myself, in, in not in that way where I, well, I sort of expect I, I, other people not to hurt my feelings and maybe in a too sensitive way. But what I have done and a lot of people do is just try to minimize contact with things that might irritate me. <laughs> You know, and and I I I I notice that tendency in myself, and I'm actually actively working against it because I always remember something that I was reading Thomas Merton 
a couple of decades ago, and I was odd to this by the even then, I guess, even though I get more and more insight into it. But he said he was talking about if you're trying to decide whether or not to enter the monastery, the monastic life. And he said, so if your goal in entering the monastery is to free yourself from the irritations of everyday life, then what you will find is that you are ever more irritated by ever smaller things. Wow. Yeah, isn't that true? And that's That's good. good. And so in a way, as a culture, we're there in a way. We're we're ever more irritated. Now, fortunately, we're less, less violent in our irritation. So that's enormous progress. But we're ever more irritated by ever smaller things. I guess that's a certain progress. But uh, I think that, you know, once we get hip to that, we realize the way forward is not to get rid of irritations, but to breathe them in a little bit and make some space for them. And, you know, and integrate them and in so doing transcend them. And it's exhausting. (laughs) <laughs> well, what you just described is an integral vision, <laughs> so your go-to vision. Uh, you know, a principle here that, that I, I think is, is super important is I can't receive soothing from you unless I'm soothing myself a little bit. You know, if I'm not willing to soothe myself a little bit, you know, if you're, if you're um, you know, offending my green sensibility and I'm not willing to go, you know, Keith, lighten up a little bit. I'm not going to receive you going, you know, I'm sorry, I offended your green sensibility. Okay. I'm going to still hold on to that because what I'm essentially doing is holding on to either a frightened or an angry story. And both of those stories block me from receiving from you. And so our, our, our vast capacities for interpersonal regulation, which is, you know, one of the miracles of intersubjectivity is what's so yummy about the lower left. You know, because most people in intersubjectivity were regulating towards interest and love and connection and excitement and creativity. How does that stop? One person just blocks receiving influence or offering caring influence. At that particular point, you're separated. And the only way that that you get unblocked is if you start soothing yourself enough to open up to the other person. You know, self-regulate. And to do that, you need to give the uncomfortable feelings and that some positive attention, some healthy attention, and you need to deconstruct that hostile story a little bit because you got a hostile story that, or, or a frightened story that supports those distressed feelings. And if you do that a little bit, now I can get back into the intersubjective flow. And if I'm not, I'm separated, I'm isolated. And it doesn't matter how many people around me love me, I'm all alone. Well, I mean, you've done psychotherapy with thousands upon thousands of people. You've seen a lot of this. Yes, I have. People who get just um, completely clenched around their own story and their own anxieties and some hard cases out there. Oh, God. You know, most of the people I work with are very functional, you know, at this point in my career and and highly functional people. And they struggle. Um, There's, you know, people that are less functional, um, uh, much more dangerous. the, 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 power, the powers that we have are, are so phenomenal, but they're, all the powers, there's this dialectic of progress, are two-edged swords. Our powers of focus and intent can create miracles, but if we harness that focused intent in service of paranoid stories or frightened stories or defensive states, we can essentially wall us or ourselves off from other people. Um, 
you know, narcissism is a popular thing these days. I don't know if it's just because of Trump or it's because people are kind of getting hip to the, the idea that there's, there's, there's real connection. And then there's connection where someone wants something from you, but doesn't want you. you know yeah, I mean? You're a piece on their game board. So. Yeah, or a source of narcissistic supply. Yeah. Well, that what we don't like about narcissistic wounds is that someone is locked into a, a, a position where they're separate from us. You know, they will, they won't, they won't regulate themselves so they can connect, heart, you know, heart to heart with us. And after a while, we feel that, and it bothers us. Okay. Um, and that is the great wound of narcissism. You know, you can engage in successful object mm-hmm. relations. That's a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, you know, you know, I wonder if. Um, you know, when we think about the big move of the development of humanity here, you know, and, and how humans used to the worldviews of 10,000 years ago and 100,000 years ago and even a few hundred years ago. And um, is, are, are we all, even the best of us, in a narcissistic trance that uh, we will a hundred years from now or 200 look back and be able to see that we can't see now, you know, just, just that basic contraction around the self just continues to loosen. Right. First of all, I really, you know, love that perspective. You know, what Ken says, step back far enough. Everything looks good. What will happen is, is people will look back and make that conclusion about the cultural zeitgeist. They'll look back and they'll go, how could they possibly have kept pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere under the, when they had all the information? How could they have possibly continued to allow people um, to die from illnesses that are preventable and, 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 and families to not get the support that they, how could they possibly have allowed mothers to be separate from their children in the first year of life? What, what were those people thinking? They'll be thinking that. Now, Given the complexity of modern existence, there's a lot of us that are outliers. And so basically what we're saying to those people in the future is, yeah, that's what what you said. And it's hard to change a zeitgeist. It's hard to change a culture. You know, people have to grow through the same levels. And if people get power at a particular level, they're prone to the pathologies that are at that level. Um, And that's going to keep happening until there is a larger container that makes it difficult for people to practice the pathologies and easier for people um, to grow. If you look at the social democracies in, in my favorite uh, uh, govern, governments on the planet, um, so you have an influx of, of, of migrants, which are happening now. So what, what is that? that there, there is a counterforce of nativism and racism that arises up in response to that, which produces acts of violence sometimes, certainly acts of racism and bigotry and so on. People get threatened and, and, and so on. So say those people break the law. So when those people break the law, then they're arrested in these Northern countries. So then they're sent to prisons. In the prisons, people are very interested in helping people grow to larger perspectives. The prisons in, in Norway and Sweden, for instance, are, are basically organized around those for everybody. You know, not just for, for misdemeanor people, for felony people, for murderers. Okay. They're very interested in that process. Okay. So 
so the, you see the the, the 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 pathology of the of the earlier value memes coming up when you stress a culture. That's always going to happen. But then you're seeing a cultural response that's a different. It's not punitive. It's protective, and it's not just protective of the victims. It's protective of the perpetrators. You know, they're precious human beings. Let's see if we can save them. Let's see if we can transform them. So that makes that makes integral people happy. Because what we want is we want the, the like Star Trek. We want the World Federation to be organized yeah. that way. Yeah. So that when we encounter our human failings, that that one, we're protected from hurting other people, or other people are protected from hurting us. And two, there's also some attention to help us grow through those. Yeah. Which is, this is, in fact, this, that's part of this conversation, because I see in America the overmedication of America running off of this zero tolerance for pain. I mean, 10, 11% of Americans are on psychotropic drugs. A third of women of childbearing age are on psychotropic drugs, and we're still having an epidemic of anxiety and depression. These are supposed to be medicines for anxiety and depression. So if so many people are taking medicines for anxiety and depression. How come we're having skyrocketing rates? Something's not working. What is it? I mean, we, we've talked about, um, you know, an oversensitivity to pain or just an ideology that thinks that pain is not, uh, you know, a pain is a sign that something's wrong. That's right. And, and it must be fixed. So, and let's, let's go into the larger. And if I keep feeling it, I'm a failure. And then, yeah, I'm a failure. And, and so I have, then I have to hide my failure from other people, which is not talk to other people about pain, which is one of the best ways to lower your pain. Talk to somebody else about it. Um, I need to, I, I go through life having low self-esteem because apparently other people don't have emotional pain and I have all this emotional pain. You know, maybe I'm a worthless person. Um, I get depressed about life. You know, what's life is, you know, because I've learned how to amplify my pain and identify myself by my pain rather than by my precious mm -hmm. human consciousness and my joy and my relationships. And I know instinctively that I'm in an environment that is working against my, my basic humanity. Um, you know, we're in an environment where, say in America, richest country on earth, 95% of the people worry about money every week. Okay? So that, what's that worry about? Well, that's not just irrational fear. You know, America will let you fall pretty much as far as you can fall. They'll let you fall all the way to death. And the institutions are designed to support themselves, not because they're evil institutions, but because the corruption in them is, hasn't been adequately regulated. We don't have a, a, a container that does that yet. Okay. And so we all know we're, we're somewhat at risk um, from a cultural standpoint. Also, you know, we're in an individualistic society that doesn't take into account the fact that interdependence is where the sweet spot is. And so in the, to me, independence has I, I, been completely redefined. Independence to me is someone who's appropriately interdependent. Appropriate interdependence is what creates a happy, healthy person. And, that, and so that's an entirely different thing than a concept of self-reliance self is I don't need other people. Self-reliance is um, I can do everything myself. Right. Self-reliance is I can, I can regulate my own life to keep growing, and, and that includes regulating emotional pain. Self-reliance is having adequate interpersonal inter, uh, um, interdependence um, and getting better and more effective at that um, with, uh, with the, in, in the lower left, the help of other people throughout my life. 
So, you know, as we move forward, we want to integrate these things. So we yeah. want that self-reliance, that, that we don't want to go back to pre-self-reliance. No. Uh, but there's a communal aspect that wants to come back online in a new way. Yes. And, um, and I think we're definitely hip to that and, and ready for that. How, we all have this sense that modernity, that's where the center of gravity of the culture is, and it is individualistic. It, it uh, uh, re- represents self-reliance and looking good. And yeah. again, there's something about, if we look at our closest relationships, where people really know us, mm-hmm. and they've seen us up, and they've seen us down, and, and, and our masks have fallen, at least some of them or most of them, uh, that there's something there in terms of where we're going, where we stop worrying about looking so good. And what we do at that is we value deep contact. Yeah. Everybody likes deep contact. Yes. You know, the people come into my office and the first thing that happens with them is they relax when they experience deep contact. And they feel it with me reaching to understand them as deeply as I can immediately. And, and I can feel them opening and relaxing. And, you know, we have it. I mean, I, I've said it before, you know, like one of the reasons I love you is you, you love me for not in spite of who I am. You like me because of who I am. You know, you love me because of who I am. And I feel that way about you. And so, you know, there's no shadow part of me that's hidden from you or shadow part of you that's, that's hidden from me, but either construct either or destructive. And, and so deep contact is something that isn't just healing. Um, it's, it's enlivening and energizing, and we all need it, and we all want it. Yeah. yeah. And the capacity to create it is there in everyone, but, but the defensive states that we talk about or the blind spots of whatever value need, they block that. They keep us. They keep us from going deeper. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's the future. You were talking about the future. Will we get nicer? I think one thing that's going to happen is people are going to start being more aware of healthy attention to pain versus unhealthy attention to pain. I think the relative standard of, of the emotional pain will become more and more and more popularized. And I think people will, will recognize deep contact and go for it. And and certainly learn how to take responsibility for doing their best to create it in relationships and elsewhere. You know, in a way, that's the difference between a tribe and a community. You know, in a tribe, we're all connected because in tribes, we're all we're all connected with blood kinship. And in most tribal languages, there's one word for human being, which is us and my my relations, and another word for all the other people that are not human beings. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Okay. Well, that's where racism comes from, partly. A community is where we all agree on certain standards of how to be with ourselves and each other. Yeah. And, and, and those standards are the kind of things that we're all talking about now when we're talking about community. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we want to move into that uh, appreciating what we got from the individualistic uh, stage. Uh, right. Particularly even the, the, the green stage that we're seeing now, which still has a lot of that you know, show your true colors, wave your freak flag. Uh, And what we have seen in the last few years is, I think, an enormous uh, uh, ability to to see people for who they are. You know, fat, skinny, this color, that color, gay, here on the spectrum, there on the spectrum, we had all of it, uh, or at least a lot more of it. 
Mm-hmm. So that people are now entering this collective with more individuality, basically, and more of themselves that's authentically online instead of conforming. That's not the kind of collective we want. We want a new collective that integrates this, you know, it's the bar in Star Wars. Right. Though, to do that, we need the healthy aspect of Amber. In other words, we need healthy con- conforming. Healthy, healthy conforming is I don't shoot you if you have a different right. belief about something and dismiss you because um, uh, you cheated on your wife. Okay. You know, okay, I'm not going to dismiss you or shoot you. I'm going to more deeply understand you. Yeah. So what becomes more significant is our capacity to be related. Okay. Yes. And what I want, my sense of responsibility is I want to be, have a capacity to be related to anyone that I come in contact with in as optimal way as possible. Um, you know, Buddha really had it right with the, the Four Noble Truths. I mean, the first one is what we've been talking about. Life is suffering. You know, come on, accept it, everybody. The, the, the second one is suffering is caused by being attached. I don't want to have to feel any anxiety. Well, sorry, there's some anxiety in the world. There is relief. What is the relief? Well, the Eightfold Path involves right attention, right livelihood, right, right, right mindfulness. Basically saying, you know, do what you need to do and get back involved in the present moment. Now, he, that's a, it's a basic core capacity of human beings that he discovered that if we can reach through the entanglements and the associations and the projections, that truth endures in terms of liberating us. And what happens when we're liberated? We're able to love everybody. Yeah. A liberated human has a vast capacity for relatedness, not just with other people, but you know, all the plants and animals and stuff. And, you know, right. and so that's the future. Now, does that mean you're being nice all the time? No, but you know, when you're mad, you're being mad respectfully. Yeah. Well, that's just it. I mean, that's that's what we want. And I think that's the the key is when I think about my intimate relationships where I can be who I am and I can hear the truth and it ain't always sugar-coated and all of that good stuff, uh, I can handle that to the degree that I know that person loves me. Yes. And is for me. Mm-hmm. You know. And, th- and once, to, or, you know, as we continue to increase the circle of people, as I'm talking culturally now, yes. of people who are inside and worthy of the full moral consideration that we would give our loved ones, uh, then we can do that with each other because all of a sudden, I think you're for me instead of, you know, against me. Yeah, and if you're not then I'll just take appropriate measures. Yeah, exactly. And and this is where I think of good old Dr. Phil, where he he has these people on who and they're like, I can't trust him anymore, you know? And he says, okay, what we're trying to get to is not where you can trust him, but you can trust yourself to handle it no matter what he does. And that's a new safe space. It is, and it's, it's discernment. You know, back when I was a hippie, my girlfriend and I were at some event and some other guy said, oh, can I have a place to crash? And he, I, I got bad vibes from this guy from the very beginning. So my girlfriend, Mary, said, sure, crash at our house. I went, oh, okay, fine. So I woke up the next morning, and my jacket and my checkbook were gone, okay? Now, I know, okay? So, so look, you know, I'm sure that guy was in need of a jacket and a checkbook. I'm not saying no. 
But, you know, my intuition was right with him. You know, he's a worthy human being, but, you know, I'm not going to trust you to a particular extent until, why? Because, because hierarchy returns in the second tier, and I was having a little second tier moment right there. But then I crashed back into green and deferred to my girlfriend instead of saying, I was, no, you can't come stay in my house. I don't know who you are. You might take my jacket and my checkbook. How do I know? <laughs> Which yeah. I should have said. And then now... Being able to make that discernment while still having a compassionate consideration for the other person, that's the second tier relatedness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're, we're heading for. You know, that, that we see people's strengths and their weaknesses and actually make adjustments for, the, for their capacities and for our own capacities. For totally. Them. And what a relief that is to not always have to contract against other people's transgressions. Yeah. You know, and to just, uh, you know, appropriately contract, but not automatically. And this is one, when we talk about moving into second tier, for those of you who may not be completely clear in the theory, we're talking about moving to the next stage of development, which is beyond, you know, we have traditional modern, postmodern, it's the integral stage, which is the beginning of a new tier. And, you know, the theory tells us that we move from a operating system of fear which is the, what powers the first stages of development, to an operating system of love, essentially, uh, or creativity, or uh, beingness. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's interesting, because then I, I, I actually want to take on my anxiety and, and sort of these uh, uh, conditioned responses of emotional pain. And transmute them as best I can into something that is not so fear-based and not so contracted. Do you notice how practice. You notice how when you say that you instinctively get interested in your contraction? Oh yes. So when I was talking about healthy attention, so giving something healthy attention also means so if I keep obsessing or if I keep or I have destructive impulses, if I've developed enough of a witness, which is developing a more robust witness as part of development, then I get interested in that. Being interested in the truth of that grows my unconscious, grows my shadow self, grows me. Makes me not just less likely to do those things or indulge those impulses, um, it, makes me, it makes me more likely to notice those as intrusions from someplace else of my consciousness, my history, trauma, whatever, family of origin, and be interested in that. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing that I've noticed a lot in psychotherapy, people, when they go into psychotherapy, will go through a stage of, first of all, I want to examine, I want, I'm willing to look at the stuff I haven't been willing to look at. I go, okay, great. You know, I'm, I'm all over that. So then as we look at it, we start doing family of origin work. And so, so often we do family of origin work, people begin to realize that mom and dad weren't really perfect. <laughs> a few mistakes, and I'm kind of pissed off at mom and dad. Okay, or my brother or my sister, and, and for a lot of good reasons, you know, they did bad things. You, you know, sometimes there's no trauma, but sometimes there's trauma and there's all that kind of stuff. And you go, okay, so you work on that and people grow. And then at a certain point, they start remembering their childhood and they go, but you know, we used to do these family vacations where I really had a good time. Or, you know, we all had a group hug when I was a kid. Or, you know, my birthday party, my dad went and bought me a bicycle. And, and they start having the positive memories. They start coming back. They start having a more nuanced understanding. Why? Giving that attention, you go through different layers from denial into the trauma and then into the deeper waters of 
okay, how this environment shaped me and who they were as human beings, mm-hmm. trying to do their best. Most parents do. And that gives me a different relationship, not just with them, but with my own history, which makes me more positive moving forward into the world. Okay. I have a skewed sample with psychotherapy because nobody comes into psychotherapy to stay stuck or to regress. They come into psychotherapy to grow. So (laughs) I'm I'm already ahead when someone walks into my office. I got a human being who wants to grow. Okay, great. With the powers that human beings have, the question isn't, are you going to grow as a result of this experience? It's just just how much can you grow and how fast are you going to grow? And are you willing to endure the pain of growth? Well, it's it's a new orientation that I, I, I don't know where it's going to lead us. I mean, I could see where it's led me as a person yeah. to have a sort of inquiring mind about all of that. But when we think it, we look at um, history and see that you know, at the traditional stage, our desires to be obedient so that we can have eternal life, and at modern, as we want to achieve and we be the best that we can be, uh, this idea of growing actually is just a whole new ballgame. Yeah, a lifetime. Yeah. Lifetime of development. And, and as the, you know, pig of the python continues to, to move in, in culture, I'm just so curious. And will I be, you know, I, I would love to live to see it, and, and maybe I will, you know, in terms, in, in terms of ways that are mysterious. And, of course, yes, you're right. I am in ways that I want to appreciate. Well, there's something about in the lower left. We, sell, we mutually amplify whatever we're talking about. So I know if we want to talk about what we're pissed off about, we can mutually amplify that. Oh, boy, do we ever. Really popular, and and that's a really great way of manipulating people's consciousness. But if we're mutually amplifying seeking, you know, we begin to to have transcendent experiences with each other that, that make us larger. Until at a certain point, we're not identifying primarily with, you know, our individual separate body and stuff. We're identifying primarily with our connections with the universe and, and with the consciousness that exists in our bodies with other, and, and in relationship with other people. So one thing that you can, I can predict confidently is what's coming in the future is more of that. Um, now, the social forms that are going to come out of that, I think we're seeing a little bit of that with the millennials. Um, and the next generation, they're not particularly uh, happy, but they're less violent and they're a little bit more communitarian. Um, um, c- certainly, um, uh, the, there's a lot of stuff that everybody, in, at least uh, uh, not everybody, but lots and lots of people accept as, as, as found, um, as, as accepted wisdom that wasn't accepted just one generation ago or two generations ago. Um, the idea of unity is a good example. Um, the idea of, of 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 being respectful and kind um, to to uh, everybody, no matter what, nonviolence. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. You know. And we, maybe even you know, just to get back to what we were talking about, maybe the the unhappiness that you do talk about. It's you know, it's uh, statistically shown uh, is sort of that hangover of. On one hand, this increased sensitivity to everything, including their own interiors, uh, and and still this idea hung over from the past that we not ought not be feeling that. Yeah, zero tolerance for pain. Zero tolerance for pain. You no, know, why is the, the the right now the the age cohort from fourteen to twenty four is the least happy age cohort by by self um, um, report 
of any one of the last four or five generations. Partly, I think, because they've been raised in this zero tolerance for, for pain culture. And so have learned how to amplify pain and then self-identify as people in emotional pain. Okay? Yeah. And so what we're seeing now is that zero tolerance standard being re reflected in that particular generation. Well, and also when you consider that, you know, th that culture wants to turn the tables on the victim and perpetrator. So being a victim is actually a higher status role. Yeah, right. So then, well, it, it people, I'm not sure that's altogether bad in the sense that it gets us curious about the ways we've been victimized that were, uh, we were blind to. The reason I reacted when you said victim is that the technical definition of victim, you know, from the, you know, the, the way back in the 70s, transactional analysis said that human distressed reaction tends to ha off ha happen from three interlocking positions, a victim, persecutor, and rescuer. That when people are not having real contact, but are interacting intensely, um, usually with distress, they're either the victim, the persecutor, or the con or, 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 or the, the rescuer. And what characterized victims is people that were invested in, in not working their way out of their victim position. They wanted support, but they wouldn't receive support to feel like an autonomous, non-victim person. They re received support to feel more comfortable in their victim position. And the persecutors would get pissed off at that and persecute victims because they felt victimized by the victims. And then, and basically they were competing to say, no, I'm more of a victim to you than you are a victim to me. Meanwhile, rescuers would come in and they'd offer goods that they couldn't deliver. They'd say that they were overpromising. They said, look, just pay attention to me, you know, let's go, we'll get you cleaned up and everything and everything will be fine. Well, everything was not fine because that did not strike, that did not deal with the deeper structures that were getting people connected. And the rescuers were actually being passive aggressive, saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to help you. And really they were helping them stay stuck rather than helping them be liberated. Some people need boundaries to be liberated. They don't need people helping them. Okay. Wow. And so a, vi a victim technically is someone that does not want to work themselves into being a healthy, autonomous, interdependent. Yes. Well, I, I think you just did a, Tremendous cultural analysis there. <laughs> I mean, honestly, so I, don't stop there. Uh, so how do, <laughs> what do we do with that? Well, the, here's the thing about deep contact. You know, if we're in deep contact with ourselves and with each other, if we develop a, a robust enough witness and we're able to look at distress with interest, I can see my impulses to be persecutor, victim and rescuer. And I can see other people's per impulses. In fact, I spend, I spend four days a week, you know, eight or 10 hours a day, just doing that all the time. I've been doing it for 40, 46 years now. I do it in my sleep. I, when I'm dreaming, I'm doing that with people these days. And so, you know, of course I, you can't do something that much and not, you know, get pretty sensitive to it. And part of my job is to teach people you know how to know how to look with those at those things with interest, and then adjust to being somebody. If you're feeling, you know, like oppressed, how can I start moving myself through that in a way so I start feeling like I have agency, autonomy, and um, and, and self-respect? If I have impulses to take care of people in codependent ways, rescuer that keep them stuck, how can I learn to set appropriate boundaries instead? 
You know, if I'm a persecutor who's trying to slap some sense into somebody, how can I realize that I'm somewhat indulging um, sadistic impulses um, of wanting to attack somebody I'm pissed at? And if I really want to help them, probably attacking them is a bad idea. There's probably something else that I can do, mm. like like respectful anger rather than contemptuous anger. All the, you know, uh, John Gottman studied couples, and he found that the couples that were great couples were happy when they were having a fight. During a conflict conversation, they had five seconds of positive affect to one second of negative affect. In other words, I can tolerate you being pissed at me if at least five seconds of there is five seconds of us laughing about it or being loving towards each other to one second of God damn it, Jeff. You know, there is a little bit of that to go. Oh, and so there was there was still conflict. But the conflict was in a context, if I know this is, this is an area where we need to make some growth, and I've got to keep that five-to-one ratio of positive affect to negative affect going. We both feel that sense of responsibility. Yeah. Those people are the happy people. Yeah. Well, there again, I want to uh, expand, extrapolate that to the culture. And, you know, one to f- five to one. Uh-huh. I, I, you know, when I think about, so what is it to live in a post-polite culture? You know, where we just get to talk to each other and say what it is. Again, the 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 it, the sort of bigger container has to be positive regard. Yes. Uh, it, so that we could titrate in this negativity or whatever critique we have or mm-hmm. feedback we have. Um, and I don't think we're there yet, but I could see the way. And, and at every level of of awakening, you have new responsibilities to discern. Um, the per, if uh, the, the person with the deepest consciousness has the most responsibility, if I'm discerning that someone can't sustain a certain level of discourse, it's my job to shift that level of discourse because I'm the person that can see it. If it's somebody that can have that conversation with me, like you, I go, hey, we need to shift this level of discourse. And my son did that today. My son called up and he was a little bummed. So we ended up talking about bummer stuff, you know? And he says, God, this is a negative conversation. I said, well, let's talk about something positive. Let's talk about Game of Thrones. A bunch of people all murdering each other, giving each other all kinds of shit. <laughs> but, it's, but it's a fairy tale, so we're not worried about it. Okay? Right. okay, so we basically agreed to shift the level of discourse because we can talk like that. You know, yeah. but, but say he called me up and he just wanted to talk about how horrible, you know, say he wasn't able to do that or somebody else called me and they just want to talk about this is horrible and that's horrible and that's horrible and I'm recognizing it. So they're in a, this is horrible form of discourse. And I go, you know, let's talk about something more positive or let's talk later, you know, or, or why don't we go take a walk and stop talking, you know, go out in the sunshine. Now I'm not relating anymore. I'm handling, but I'm handling because I can't relate off of something that this other person might not be able to see. If they can't see it, it's not like I'm going to dismiss them or be disrespectful. But, you know, if I can see it and they can't, then it's my responsibility to shift the level of discourse yep. to something that's more pro-social. Yep. Yep. And I think that'll be the future. I do, too. We'll have varying levels of responsibility around Yes, yes I actually like that word pro-social. Yeah, me You too. know, I mean, that's a nice little just back pocket guiding principle. Am I being pro-social here? Am I moving things along? Uh, and you're right. Uh, the person with the higher capacity is more responsible for the relationship than the other one. So, all right, Dr. Keith, thank you for another adventure of the Shrink thank and the Pundit. Thank you for another direct adventure of, of you and me, the Shrink and the Pundit. Much love to everybody. Much Thanks love to everybody. Watching. And we'll see you next time. Take care. <laughs>